Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Comics Fondle Podcast. My name is Andrew, and my blog is ComicsFondle.com. And I'm Vernon, and uh, I'm your 400-pound guy in the couch trying to break into Ronald Trump's uh, election committee, but I'm also a lifelong comics fan and ready to go to work for you. <laughs> I know, I just came up with something off my head anyway. Uh, we we got a pretty decent show of some later stuff. No Marvel, no DC, but that's pretty much par for the course for yeah. you and me. There, yeah. What are you talking about? We got a Marvel. We do have a Mar. Oh, we do have a Marvel. You're right. Oops, there's that 400 pound gorilla coming in there again. I'm yep, gonna yep, kind of poop it. on it. So, but we'll keep that for later. Yeah, we're gonna right. poo it. But anyway, uh, yeah. so first up, the Weathermen by uh, who's the writer on that? Jody LeHoop. I hope I'm pronouncing their name correctly. And uh, the return of one of our favorite comic artists, Nathan Fox, who I don't see enough of in comics these days. Maybe he's got a day job. Not sure. But uh, what, man, we're going to cover one and two. Cause one and two, little, I guess, yeah. Two at the very least, yeah, yeah. Um, let's see here. Uh, he seems to have kept up the good momentum of our story of uh, a, what do you call that, uh, mold secret agent who finds himself, uh, what do you call that, geared in service as a weatherman. It's kind of a semi-post-apocalyptic book, but uh, Earth has reestablished on Mars and Venus, I think. Is yeah. That, is that the things? So humanity's not gone. But uh, Weatherman concerns the story of uh, a, a kind of an interesting character established in the first issue. And uh, what his true identity might be is still kind of up in the air yet. That's not fully formed. But the first issue is quite a nice uh, thing. And uh, Nathan Fox toned down his artwork a little bit. He was one of those uh, interesting artists along the inky brush lines of uh, Paul Pope. Uh, perhaps his greatest uh, detriment was that he, he didn't know when to stop drawing, I think, at some point. Got to, like, slim it down. And I think he's kind of satisfied those needs yeah. in Weatherman. Really clear, and they got a good colorist. And uh, the the story, I think it clumps along pretty good. You said second issue didn't quite uh, hit the uh, high buttons the first one did for you? I feel like, given, well, not to get to, not to spoil anything, but, the second issue, I feel like, should have been the first. I feel like they should have done a double-sized first issue. Because if they okay. were going to resolve the cl- the mystery cliffhanger of the first issue in one issue, as opposed to, like, the whole first series or whatever, they should have just done it all at once. Ah, okay, okay, yeah. The demands of commercial comics and how much yeah. they could do. Thing and everything like that. Uh, you know, but I, I still think, what is that? I think it's supposed to be a five-issue mini I see that that seems about the right length yeah. or something like this, you know. And uh, the story is kind of decently executed. The ideas are there. Uh, Nathan Fox's uh, character designs are right on target for everything. It's, it seems to fit him like a glove. Yeah. And, and uh, the characters are just kind of cool to look at and react. And uh, Jody has put some thought into how each one approaches it. You know, they have their varying levels of depth. And one could argue there's uh, everyone is a bit of a stereotype except for the weatherman, I guess. But uh, it's been pretty cool so far. It's kind of like action, adventure, suspense, uh, conspiracy, obviously, and a whole lot of science fiction goodness, too. Yeah. So yeah, I've been digging that one quite a bit. Let me see here. That is published by Image. They actually, they, they're actually, they're having a hard time finding me as far as things for them to read, but I kind of latched onto Weatherman. Yeah. I thought it was a pretty good one. So, yeah, don't pass that one up. Skip Batman and read Weatherman instead, you know. Let's see. Next up on the list. Punk's Not uh, Dead. Is it five or six we're talking about? 
Well, we're talking about five because uh, six, I think you mentioned, was not coming out for a while. I, I remember some of our correspondence. You said it was delayed or something. And I'm still looking. Uh, I'm not quite no, sure. No, that's not what I said. Oh, what did you say? Do you I say that I, it's the end of the first arc and there, it's not the conclusion. Six uh, is out. Six is out? Oh, geez, yeah. I got to get hands on one of those. But uh, that was probably your and my favorite book out of the uh, Black Crown series uh, edited yeah. by uh, – what's her name again? I'm sorry. Shelly Bond. Shelly Bond. Yeah, she did She did a great job. She's doing much better than Karen Berger over at Berger Books at Dark Horse. And uh, this was our favorite title between the two of us. The characters are great. Uh, we got what's uh, what's the name? David Barnett, the writer, and Martin Simmons, the artist, both obviously English. Uh, story of a uh, young kid in high school who's a bit of a nerd and an outcast and finds a common ground with a ghost who thinks he's Sid Vicious. And, and uh, Barnett seems to be getting some mileage out of this one pretty good. Yeah. Um, fifth issue is the flashback, or was that the fourth issue? No, the fifth issue is the flashback with the female secret issue. Yeah. And I, she seems like, even even though the high schooler's an interesting character with with his back and forth with Sid, uh, this, uh, what would she be like, a, a representative of the British government who handles a cult right. matter? And her backstory is just absolutely fascinating. Yeah, that one's awesome. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, sixth issue without spoiling it for you, in addition to anyone listening. Um, they sort of, you know, do a soft uh, pilot for what's coming in the next series, and that's cool. Um, hopefully we don't have to wait too long for it. Hopefully they get another series. I think we haven't seen any of the Black Crown books come back yet. Right. I mean, if if I remember correctly, looking at circulation figures, they, they were looking pretty miserable. There's a huge shakeup at IDW, too. Uh, That's right, got, yeah. They shortened the staff, and uh, I guess they were bleeding money over there. They went through all their Chinese movie money, and... Uh, or whatever it was, I have no clue. But uh, I was thinking, you know, uh, where, where's the rest of this stuff? Because uh, when you when you talk about circulation figures, you you, you want to get it going, but you can't like knock it off at the knees. But on the other hand, I'm thinking, what were these things doing? Were they even hitting six thousand copies an issue? Which, right. And it's pretty hard for somebody with the money bags to keep publishing. But Punk's Not Dead was a pretty good book. But I had a special order it. You know, I mean, that's like. Very few retailers carry the things, you know. That may be a bigger problem in the uh, in the whole scenario of comic books right now because uh, with the slight contraction of sales, I suspect that while many retailers are trepidatious about ordering these oddball things, let alone discovering them, with the smaller cash flow, a lot of them are even less with the ability or drive to order these marginal titles than before. Right. That might be hurting it a bit, but I hope uh, Punk's Not Dead goes further. It was probably their most successful book and certainly their most interesting. Uh, yeah. you know. So uh, Barbarella from Dynamite, of all places. Um, issue 7 wraps up the uh, rather awesome little... No Billy Hunt. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, the Western slash whatever... Uh, that was a nice finish to that that series, uh, that story arc. Um, eight is sort of overshadowing it in my head. I got some things to say about eight. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm I'm with you on that one. It seems that it, 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 he's uh, Carrie's doing these uh, 
mini arcs for the artist Gerard to be able to do three issues at a pop, and then he's punctuated them with a couple of one shots. The first one was more successful. Yeah. This this one almost kind of like uh, Barbara L has always been one of those uh, space adventure type thingies that has that French background in it where there's always a bit of like elusive edgy sexual jokes content although it's not explicit or x-rated by any sort of the ways it seemed like issue eight kind of relied a little too much on that formula and yeah it didn't it didn't have anything new in it that we haven't already seen anyway especially in barbarella yeah i mean it's 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 filler, but it's not good filler like that first issue was. That first issue when you were like, I'm not reading that. I'll wait for your R to get back or whatever. I'm like, you got to read that. <laughs> this one, I would have been like, oh, yeah, you don't have to read this one. I mean, it's fine, to... but you don't have to read it. Like, Right. If you want to straight run a Barbarella, you'll buy it, obviously. Yeah. But Barbarella still seems to be the uh, go-to comic if you want lighthearted, brainless kind of uh, science fiction adventure tinged with sexual innuendo. And Barbarella is a very strong, independent character, despite the fact that she likes to have sex with just about anybody that she finds curious about. It doesn't hurt the book, strangely enough. It's almost yeah. like a personality quirk on her behalf, you know. But uh, every issue has been readable. And Mike Carey, it's good to see him come back after, like, disappearing. Here's mm-hmm. when Vertigo died, you know? Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm digging the books. I, 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 I actually, uh, I don't read very many Dynamite books. It's like at any given time, like Dynamite's one of the worst publishers of comics we have in America. And I think at any given time, I think I could find one book of theirs that I'll read. You know? <laughs> and right now they got lucky with Barbarella. So that's been pretty cool. And uh, speaking of oddballs, man, the next one, Bloodstrike. Uh, did that one finish? Oh, yeah, yep. that one finished up. Yeah, that's right. You, Yeah, I read 24. Sorry about that. And uh, nice three-issue miniseries. By it's, yeah. Especially since I'd never read any Bloodstrike. Um, oh, me neither. <laughs> like the first issue sort of introduces you to the concept. Or no, the, fir- the second issue more introduces you, fills you in. The first issue like hooks you with this weird story. Second issue flush, uh, fleshes out Bloodstrike for people who don't read Li- Rob Liefeld comics. And the third issue, that, which is 24, um, sort of resolves the whole thing. It's really a nice little finish for the... Yeah, it's a, it was yeah. A, And uh, Michael Fike takes the ball and runs with it. He takes one of those... I swear to God, the image creators, the initial eight or whatever it was, they seem to have such great luck in listing the uh, talents of independent creators who perhaps were in grade school when these things came out. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. That, yeah. yeah. Go ahead, please. I had no, I mean, this is, we're going to talk about it later on with Ed Pisker, but yeah, we're, we're getting what happens when you have more talent than the comic book creators of your favorites when you were a teenager. Yeah. The back man from Fife seems to insist that, he was like utterly wowed by these comics as a young boy, which I don't know. They certainly didn't have the standard of the old Marvel and DCs when I grew up with, and certainly not when you grew up. Andrew and I are of different generations, and actually we're talking about the third generation right. now. In- Five, and he is far, far more talented than Rob Liefeld and any of the people that did this. Probably, I will, I will assume Bloodstrike was one of your typically horrible image comics that came out in the nineties. Oh, I whatever. think it was worse because it was an extreme comic. 
Yeah, yeah, those are definitely uh, wall insulation. You don't even have to read those. I'm not even sure the uh, visuals are interesting, but but for whatever reason, those damn things uh, inspired Michael Fife to do like a three-issue riff on it. And incidentally, and I was reading the back matter on 24, and the reason we got such weird numbering, and I even forgot about this, back, back in 95, 96 when I opened up the shop, uh, Image had decided to take their entire line and issue numbering and all go to issue 25 when the creators thought where they would be at at issue 25. And strangely enough, they all published 25s within like a two or three month period, you know. And then this book, uh, Bloodstrike, was canceled at 22. So <laughs> Fife did a zero, a 23, and a 24 to catch up. And it's just kind of fun because it, it how do you say it, it fu- fully um, – it fully loves the bad tendencies of mainstream violent comics. If anything, this seems to be more violent than Bloodstrike would have been because I can't imagine Rob Reifeld having an original idea in his head to incorporate such extreme violence into a comic, you know? <laughs> but Fight's visuals are great. Very good. Very yeah. good. Um, Make sure you get the trade. I think I think I saw a trade uh, advertised coming up in October. So that's, that's cool. Yeah, yeah, ten bucks for that. I could I could see that yeah. anyway. Yeah, and yeah. don't forget what's what's the name Copra. His uh, Suicide Squad riff is something he currently uh, publishes out of his uh, out of his studio in Brooklyn or Queens or some godforsaken New York uh, borough. But uh, Anyway, back to back to the uh, charts, as it were. It looks like Mike Carey's got another book that he's Mike got. Mike Carey, highest house. Oh, oh. I know. that's like a, what do you call it? That's our steak right now. And I, so number six finishes the first book, and I I got to assume this is IDW again, or is it? Uh, yes, yes, it is. Yeah. So IDW is undoubtedly hiring some children in China to put together a lovely trade paperback of this. I hope it's oversized. Uh, I believe so. It's going to be beautiful. I mean, just the way, what is his name? Peter Gross? Yeah, Peter Gross, the artist. How he incorporates uh, sort of the, what is it? He has a certain style to the book that reminds you of sort of medieval, not paintings, then, you know, when you'd see a medieval, I don't know. He has different... There's you, a certain- you, you went to art school. Come on, Vernon. Uh, <laughs> what, the tapestries and the printmaking of... Yeah, uh- kind of the tapestry thing where he's got... Um, a design to the page, a design to the panel layout, and then the individual panel composition. And it's all, it's stylized in a way to uh, sort of give you the feel of this monarchy, this, uh, yeah, this sort well, of. The entire thing is steeped in. Uh... It, 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 it's on one hand, when you read the first couple of issues, you think of it as like a fantasy type of book. But as you go along to the fourth, fifth, sixth issue, it becomes very apparent that Mike Carey is really steeped in like, uh, I, I don't know my history very well. I'm going to take a stab at 15th or 16th century. Yeah. 
something like that. And Gross goes along for the ride by mimicking the style of printmaking and illustrations. I mean, he does do a standard storytelling, but there's these big double-page spreads and these individual panels that mimic uh, illustration and printmaking. And uh, Mike Carey just he incorporates uh, historical elements constantly within this mythological thing, you know? Yeah. So issue five and six introduce a lot more of the uh, sort of economic politics. It's, it's, it's interesting how it's gone from magic to romance to politics. Oh yeah. Economies yeah. of scale. Yeah. Yeah. What's his name? Uh, Moth, the lead character protagonist is, um, Given the uh, he's the main center of the character, but all of his relationships with all the different people, he's he starts out as a slave and he gets to be a better off slave because of the things he does and his uh, interactions with other people and and the um, entity which exists within Highest House, which was a really great reveal in issue five or something. Yeah. That was great. And the historical elements of six were just welcome. And this book is like chock full of texture, and, and but it reads easy. Yeah, it's. Uh, I'm sort of looking at our list as a whole. It's certainly the most accomplished uh, indie book we've seen in a long time. Yeah, yeah, and it, well, it, you know, it's kind of funny. We talk about indie books, how much better they are at creating mainstream comics than Marvel and DC are. And while this would have fit perfectly at home at Vertigo, uh, IDW gave it the deluxe magazine treatment and the nice stock. And like you said, you mentioned the trade paperback collection, which would be oversized as well. And, you know, I think I saw it advertised like twenty four ninety nine retail, worth every cent. Yeah. In, uh, I think each issue is at least, what, uh, it's not 20 pages. It takes forever to read Highest House, too. You know, like, you're going to be reading Highest House. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, one of the few comics that bears repeated readings is too because you're going to miss shit the first time around, you know. Yeah, but that's definitely our stake amongst our hamburger books, as it were, you know. Yes. Uh, let's see here. Let's move on. Um, I don't know. Is Ether Copper Golems one of your books? At no, all? that's one of your books, Vern. You you talk I'm, about it. Sorry. Uh, anyway, um, I'm kind of into the artwork of David Rubin. He's one of my current favorites. The guy just works his ass off and he's got this visual imagination and he teamed up with uh, indie writer Matt Kent to produce what I'll call kind of a melancholy approach to the protagonist who balances his time between Earth and a fantasy dimension and when they start to like intermingle with one another, he finds himself at both a personal and an earth-shattering crisis to try to solve everything and this is the second series of Ether. And issue three, um, I guess it's, what do you call that? It's not a, uh, what's it, what do they call it? It's not a filler, but it continues the story without much different than what was there before. So it kind of lost a little momentum, you know, but I enjoy the main protagonist and I like uh, Ruben's visuals for all the characters and the situations they get in. And again, this is one of the cases of uh, an indie book from Dark Horse that far exceeds expectations that you'll find in a lot of uh, mainstream stuff. It's a beautiful book to look at, and they're doing some experimentation. And uh, if you're into fantasy, I would definitely recommend it. It's uh, pretty decent stuff, and God knows David Rubin is like such good eye candy, I swear. Good stuff, anyway. I'll tell you what, I'll let you talk for Infinity 8. 
<clears throat> so Infinity 8, um, Volume 2. So now, is Infinity 8 going to be eight, issue, eight series of three-issue series? That's what I think I, it is. Yeah. That's how I understand it. Yeah. Uh, so... The last series was awesome. Uh, this series has a new artist. Um, Oliver Mateen. Who's not as good as the last guy, but he's good. Good cartoonist. Good yeah. cartoonist. Uh, interesting protagonist. Louis Trondheim's writing again, or co-writing again. Good protagonist. She's got a good sidekick. And then, you know, they bring in Hitler's head. And it's apparently going to all be about Hitler's head. And I was just kind of like, I just, eh, like, this is not, you know, I mean, they're like, oh, it's funny because Nazis in the far future just think it's like a, um, a bake club or something like they don't have any context for any of the, they don't have any of the Nazi history. They just have the imagery. They don't know what the Nazis did. So, oh, it's funny. You know, we're having cupcakes and we're doing this and everybody can be a Nazi. We love everybody. But then they discover Hitler's head and Hitler comes back. And that's presumably what they're going to have to deal with in the next two. But it's just kind of like, even when this was done, what, probably a couple years ago in France, it doesn't seem the right time to make Nazis cute. I guess. Right, they're like cosplaying hobbyists. Yeah, and it's just like, eh, it's kind of a cheap thing. Like, if it were, I don't know, 1965, and it was, they say, they froze Hitler's head, and it was a Roger Corman movie, that's one thing. But, eh, you know, it's not, it, it, it had, there's no, um, there's no depth to the satire. Right. I think that's the thing that most strikes me. I yeah. mean, books, but they're not funny. Maybe we're just in a real, you know, and the fact that it's French and we're American, uh, the humor doesn't translate. Those Maybe. Things. Yeah. You know, it, 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 for those of you at home, Infinity 8 involves a security guard who is the protagonist who is on this uh, gigantic spaceship, Infinity 8, transporting people, and it has the uh, ability to. How do you say the captain of the ship is this particular alien that can go back, what, eight days in time and decide whether or not to pick what reality after it's happened? So that's kind of a nice twist. And all of the many aliens that are aboard Infinity 8 are of a real varied type of uh, background, which was really explored in first good depth in the first three-issue thing. Although I don't think I care about the alien aspect. I think that's kind of gone with the – of Hitler's head. They, they, they run into this graveyard in space that's filled with artifacts and the Hitler's people, the hobbyists, they said, Oh, there's a V2 rocket laying out there. We have to explore it. And that's where they find Hitler's head. And it's kind of a joke that goes a little too far. Perhaps I'm not sure. Especially you know? since we've got two more issues of this. I'm just kind of like, Oh, you're going to be, you're going to have to pull something out of your magic hat, Mr. Yeah. Tom. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. But uh, again, the visuals by uh, uh, Mateen are, are pretty good. Uh, he follows through the illustration uh, that was set by the first team. Yeah. 
and uh, but not as good as the first arc so far. I'm willing to. I love my Trondheim, but I'm willing to wait and see what happens. But you're right; it's not the best start, you know. And I mean, we've got six more of these series, so I'm confident that those will be. It's 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 just that they can't make this content funny. It's, it's tough, you know, especially yeah. like the way they do it. Like you'd ha- yeah, I don't want to spoil anything, but it's just like you're just reading, and you're like. Eh, this just doesn't seem like a good idea, guys. Like, eh, I, I don't see how you're going to make anything out of this, you know? Yeah, because Earth is, is Earth destroyed. I don't think it exists anymore. I'm not really sure. There's obviously a couple of humans around, humanoid-type people, including our protagonist. But I'm not sure, like, anybody gets the joke. Like, Nazism is a – it's a fad, you know, and it's something that people hold on to to give their life some type of hobbyistic purpose. And I, I think that, I don't know, I'm not really sympathetic to that type of uh, that thing, you know, and I'm, I don't know. It's odd. If Trondheim can pull it off, great, but it seems odd. Yeah. 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 Uh, so Maestro, seven. Maestro's is done. Uh, Scrosi did it. It's a reasonable success. Yes, yes. The soft landing of Seven was a bit kind of unexpected after all the the pushy edginess he did at the beginning and the middle of it. I kind of feel like he wanted to be done. I feel like Seven had enough material for at least two issues. Yeah. It, 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 again, it's like an odd fit when you consider the inventiveness and how much he, he like did with the, each issue of the prior series. The characters were a lot more... Interesting, you know, I mean, I fell in love with the mother and I wasn't particularly happy with the main character as much, you know, succumbing to the immense source of his power, you know, and I have to give Scrosi kudos. He was able to end it, but you're right. It could have been like fleshed out another issue mm-hmm. and, and taken a little bit before. Maybe that's the thing about lack of editors and the fact that uh, we never, Steve Scrosi is, is a writer and not necessarily known, or he's an artist, but not necessarily known as a writer. Yeah. And I mean, it's like how much Maestros didn't set the world on fire. So, you know, if he's putting this much time into something, maybe he wants to put it into something that has more potential down the line. The great curse of indies nowadays to work your ass off for a miniseries, not have it sell. And you're like, well, okay, what's next? What am right. I going you know, and uh, well, it was an odd finish. I'll give Scrosi points for being able to finish it. He finished and, it, and it was yeah, it was. Fu- I was impressed with how much content he got into that issue. Uh, yeah, and his, his sense of humor was still there, and everything. Yeah. And I right, yeah. Um, Jimmy's Bastards Nine. Um, did did we expect uh, much different than what we got? I, I, I don't know. I mean, this is a this is a comic that when what was it was it when it went to when it didn't end at five I was like oh shit really it's not over yet like the joke is over Garth the joke yeah. is over Jimmy's bastards can uh, what do you call that it, it consists mainly of a James Bond type of figure who's ultimately full of himself and is. Uh, how do you say it? As an agent, he has to save the world from this time from a bunch of madmen that want to like have a drug that goes in the populace and changes everybody's sexes. And underneath it all is is Jimmy's personal baggage of being a lifelong womanizer. 
and what the repercussions lead to be. And this is kind of fertile ground for Garth Ennis. But uh, uh, the joke went on a couple issues long, perhaps, you know, and the ending with its, how you say, general, might be a second series. I don't know. I don't think so. Uh, yeah, uh, they don't need one for sure. Uh, but it is not It is not the sublime comedy that Ennis has reached, what was it, a couple years ago with the thing called Love. You know, it's just, you know, it's it's kind of what you would expect if Ennis was doing a favor for somebody at a new company and, you know. Yeah, right, and fleshed it out to nine issues, too. Yeah. Luckily, we had Russ Braun in the artwork, so mm-hmm. his figures and his figures and his people are great. Let me ask you one question. Um, the female protagonist, when Jimmy is telling her her background – is that supposed to be a real person or is that just something fictional he made I up? I don't know. I don't. I, that, that was it. I was, I was trying to think, okay. Do we have to be British? Like, yeah, I didn't get it. I, I was, you know, cause it's filled with like real life references to some degree. And then he makes a, uh, thing about revealing the girl, her lineage, you know, mm-hmm. and I'm, that I, I don't get it. I, I don't know who this person is. You know what I mean? I was trying to think and I didn't get the joke. So Garth kind of, Missed the ball on that one somewhat. I don't know. Enjoyable, edgy, black humor, lots of blood, perhaps maybe a little bit too much grossness at the end. Uh, but yeah, you know, it's what do you call that? Grade five Garth Ennis. Leave it at that. Uh, league is all yours since I am. Last league I read was the second series. <sighs> oh, okay. That's that's a while back for you. Well, uh, The Tempest proves to be chock full of information. And uh, Alan Moore, like, is really in love with history and history of comics. And he incorporates the uh, last of the League of Gentlemen. I think there's eventually a certain amount of survivors at this time. Because it it goes over well over 100 years. And some of the characters actually are semi-immortal. And uh, it, it, he, he kind of strip mines comic history, even like gets the Legion of Superheroes parodies in there. And there's the James Bond aspect to it because the uh, of the antagonist and uh, him and Kevin O'Neill, the artist, do a wonderful job of incorporating the old style and fixing it up to be modern. And then there's there's a, the, the side plot with the James Bond that's done as a uh, – a daily black and white comic strip printed in a vertical format among the thing. Um, it's really kind of a, a nice comic because at first I'm like, okay, how much does this thing cost? Because it's, it's, it's thick, but it's only like an extra buck and it's, it's 32 pages without any ads. And Alan Moore just gives me, gives you some great back matter, like the editorial, the, the front, which is labeled created champions or cheated champions of your childhood where they, uh, espouse the ca- cause of some English artist writer who just got screwed over royally, like in the ways of uh, Jack Kirby or some guy over here. And it's not fictitious whatsoever, but he fits it in. And the letters pages in the back is just absolutely wonderful uh, about these poor wayward idiots that weigh in trying to figure it all out. And the editors make fun of them all the way through it because they don't get it. When did IDW buy Top Shelf? What? What? <laughs> The I uh, you know what well, top shelf is 
I'm trying to think. Top Shelf stopped printing. They acted as a uh, medium ground. Okay. This is not an IDW. This is a knockabout, which is English. Okay. Makes sense for Alan Moore. So it's like uh, it's it's printed by Knockabout, but it's got the top shelf label on it. So Chris Starros is acting as an intermediary to make sure it happens here in America, I guess, for these editions. No, top shelf is owned by IDW now. Oh, okay. Well, so be it. Man, yeah. you buy, you can buy it from IDW. Interesting. And their wow. imprint is top shelf. Missed wow. that a bit. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that that's pretty good. It 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 looks like a classics illustrated story. Uh, I was teasing with uh, Andrew trying to figure out what the Tempest was, and <laughs> going as far as to try to figure out what the Tempest was in Wikipedia, and that wasn't any help for this poor luddite. And uh, I don't know, but it it works. You really, it, it's very impenetrable to anybody who is not, I will say, an astute comics reader who is used to doing many layered textural types of things because more just lays it on and lays it on and lays it on to the point of where you're lost and it bears two or three readings. And you know what? That's typical of more. He, yeah. he, he likes to give mental puzzles and uh, his collaborator, Kevin O'Neill is only too willing to obfuscate and, and show path at the same time. So I'd have to say I was interested. That one worked for me. All right, so Redneck is back. That's our next one. Um, Tony Gates. You know, uh, K. Yeah, first 12 were pretty good in a genre sort of manner, you know. Uh, he kept the ball rolling. Um, uh, Lissandro Estherine's artwork certainly fit the bill about a story of vampires existing in modern-day America, but... I'm not sure this – he's got an idea to continue an arc. He wants to keep publishing it, but this one was kind of sad. Yeah, I kind of got to the end and I was like, haven't you already done this exact same reveal before, like with different characters? And then it's just like, I'm not that interested. Like, And it's like, okay, so if you guys are writing for the trades now – it's going to be like one of those series like manifest destiny where it's like, you finished it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But it's like, you don't really read it with much enthusiasm and manifest destiny. I feel like made it to about 16 before it had burned through all of its enthusiasm and redneck. I'm just kind of like, this is all you had to come back with. This does not seem like enough. Right. It's no longer an edgy attitude towards a vampire story. It's kind of kind of very pedestrian and there's nothing here that we haven't seen like ten times or yeah. yeah, he he's really liked this issue and that hurts. And I'm not sure whether it's because he's doing a lot of work for Marvel these days. I think he just got too success it's the guy who gets successful, his indie books suffer. Um Holy Shades of Jeff Lemire. Or Charles Soule. Yeah, there's another one. Yeah. Right. right. Now, let's hope Michael Fief never worked. Well, he actually he does he does like two or three pages at a time for Marvel, but that's also <laughs> for anyway. He hasn't he hasn't been bitten by this bug of success. Redneck thirteen. Ugh. I mean, if you're into it, fine. Otherwise it's passable. Yeah. Speaking of passable. What the hell happened? I think you had the best uh, explanation. 
Go go right ahead. I, 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 X-Men well, Second Genesis, number one. So as opposed to it being – or not X-Men Second – no, what what's the – the first one was X Men one one and two, but it was the, the uh, what's it of the now it's Second Genesis. The, the Grand one Design, is, Grand Design, Grand Design, right, right. So this is X Men Grand Design Second Genesis number one, or as it would have been called if this hadn't been such a hit, X Men Grand Design number three. Uh, yeah, yeah, it might have been smarter if Marvel hadn't wanted to put out two issues for twenty five dollars. Yeah. So it's Ed Pisker um, doing sort of a retelling of the X-Men comics, uh, but in sequential order. So, you know, when Chris Claremont retconned something 10 years later or 15 years later, it's in sequential order in second Genesis. And this covers the creation of the new X-Men team with uh, Wolverine and all that shit. It completely lacks anything resembling a protagonist. Professor Xavier is a guest star. And I'm like, wait, wasn't he? Yeah, he should be more important than this, shouldn't he? And it's like, yeah, maybe. So I, I feel like, and Vernon was like, oh, look. Chris Claremont's crappy plotting over the years has ruined this comic. This, this is the ability to retell these stories dramatically. And that's pretty much it. Um, hey, if there's one thing worse than reading 20 issues of Chris Claremont, it's it's reading a recapitulation of 20 issues of where there's no highs, no lows. It's just kind of dull humming sound as you're reading this comic. There's no dramatic parts. It's just a by rote retelling of their history, which isn't even that interesting because it wasn't that interesting in the first place. Uh, yeah. Oh, the Brotherhood of Evil. Or not? It's not even the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. It's the Hellfire Club. Oh, they're plotting against them, Vernon. Isn't this interesting? No. Oh. <laughs> I, none of Ed Pisker's passion for the X-Men came through in this book whatsoever. No, it was very, and I mean, the first two had a lot, but each issue had something where he like had some fun with the art. He doesn't have any fun with the art here. He's just trying to get it out. He's churning through all this stuff. In some ways, the um, back matter where he has the annotated sort of bibliography is more yeah. interesting because you're just like, wow, I can't fucking believe this is real. Like, Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're, you're in a problem when the back matter is more interesting than the front matter, you know? Um, it was so, a slot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, which is really disappointing. Um, yeah, hideously disappointing. I mean – it, it, it just kind of like one of the reasons I was in when I was in high school reading this stuff by Chris Claremont, I was struck by how he never finished a lot of his plot threads, felt obligated to introduce numerous new characters and bad guys almost every fucking issue. And it just it, it, it never had anything that would grab me. And I to this day, I'm still utterly astounded by people's love of this period of, of X-Men because I, I, I Pitsker had a advantage of the earlier stuff was that the fact that when Stan Lee and his successors were writing it didn't feel they felt the need to tell a story and the characters were more or less secondary. You know what I mean? It was kind of a soap opera. Well, Chris Claremont, when he takes over, he like puts it all on like hyperdrive 
and there's just not enough uh, meat to the story other than the constant changes that occur without any kind of dramatic higher load of the book. And it really, Pisker just, I guess maybe the source material sucks so bad that Pisker couldn't make anything out of it, you know? I don't know. But it was, like I said, it was a slog to get through. I was really forcing myself to finish this comic by the end of it. It was. I mean, and I'm reading it going, and people love the Dark Phoenix saga. It seems like it sucks. It seems like it's dumb and it sucks. I'm sorry. That's what I get out of this comic. It, it, it would have been better, like, if it were stretched out a bit. If, if, if he did abbreviated stuff, like, there's a whole lot of shit Claremont writes that you could edit out of this thing just because it doesn't add up to anything and it doesn't mean anything. And if he'd have taken the high points and maybe done something with that, it would have been more readable as a history, you know? But as it stands, ugh, ugh. Uh, Um, So a uh, little side note to that. Marvel has approached Tom Scioli about doing a Fantastic Four one. You know, if he's passionate about it, fine. If we get another by rote. Uh, yeah. That, I mean, like, before I read this, I was excited. And then I'm like, oh, it could suck, though. So why bother? Right, right. And and, and the end of the fan, I mean, you've got, like, the first, I don't know, 35, 40 issues of Fantastic Four, pretty much mainstream stuff that establishes characters. You get to the high points and the issues, uh, 50s and 60s when Kirby takes over the plotting and we get the Silver Surfer, the Black Panther, the Inhumans, all that shit come in there. And then uh, near the end of their run when you're in the 90s, uh, issue 90s that is, uh, it's obvious that there's a lot of strain and Jack Kirby just doesn't give a shit. And uh, even though it's beautifully drawn, right. shit, it's so boring. So if he could bring some life to it, fine. But I think there's maybe, well, it's, it's part of the relaunch of Fantastic Four more than it is uh, a thing like – in the Marvel history, the Fantastic Four is a pivotal book because so much stuff starts there. But as a comic, it's a real freaking dull book for much, many passages of it. You know, and it's it's alleviated by Kirby's art and his visual imagination. Well, I'm sorry Second Genesis was such a dud. Yeah. Somebody should have recognized that right off the bat, I swear. You know, I mean, some editors... They can't. They've got to, you know, they, they've yeah. got to support their Chris Claremont history, man. Man, goddamn, you know. Ugh. All I'll, right. I'll finish off with a couple other ones. Uh, Kaiju Max. Uh, yeah. Which uh, we wait. might have talked about a little, but you hadn't read it yet, but you've read it now. Season four. Yep. Uh, women's Prison. You know. Um, the women's side. The women's side. It's. Um, it's not as great as say season two, right? Hard to pass that one. Right. It has some resemblances to season three, just in how he's canons, like looking at something else, but none of the red flags yet at all that season three ended up having, or should we, we saw like season three bullshitted for five issues. And tied it up. And tied it up. This seems like it's it's not going to be bullshitting. It's just it seems like his approach to it is a more successful season three type thing, where Electra Gore and the primary cast won't be back for a while, because you know it's The Wire only with Di- uh, it's Oz, you know, and he's got a. 
thinking uh, what orange is the new black. Right. Yeah. Now this season is. So, I mean, it's, you know, I'm back on board. I'm firm. I'm, you know, I'm not as enthusiastic as I have been in the past, but I'm certainly not dreading it. Like I did season th- most of season three. I'm uh, guardedly uh, optimistic. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. That's a good way. I mean, he's got a nice set of protagonists and the women. Uh, Kaiju Max is a prison for Japanese movie monsters as well as Lovecraftian and space-oriented stuff that all have – all these monsters arrive in prison. And Kaiju Max is essentially a soap opera about monsters in prison, and it's a nice thing. Uh, Xander Canyon gets a lot of mileage out of it. Um, now – when I read it, I didn't get a chance to read it a second time. Was Elector Gore's daughter in this issue? I don't think so. I didn't read it twice, though. Oh, so, yeah. Elector Gore is our protagonist monster the first four series, although or three series, even though he takes kind of a back seat in the third series a little bit. Yeah. Uh, but uh, you know, he's inventive and screwed at his characters, and there's enough going on where you're into it. You know what I mean? And I agree with you on that one. He kept me going. All right, and now for a Karen Berger book. <sighs> Have we missed some in between? Or is this the latest? Is this like the only Berger? Have there only been like th- three from the imprint? Yeah, there was some reprint material that I didn't like cover Incognito and something else that I didn't think were very good the first time 15 years gotcha. ago. And uh, this is, I guess, maybe maybe the, the, the strongest of her stuff that she's edited. Yeah. Um, how many panels a page is it, would you say? It's about nine. Let, let me look. Um, and it's oversized. So, I mean, you get, if you're a David Aja fan, you get a lot of David Aja art. Yeah, it's, it's nine with some... Uh, Bigger panel pages. Dramatic deviations, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's post-apocalyptic. Uh, Anna Nocia, Anna Nocia, is an interesting writer for this book because she's a mainstream Marvel writer. She wrote right. Daredevil, right, in the night, uh, like... Yeah, in your day, maybe past your days, she wrote Daredevil. Yeah. yeah. So, I, it's weird because, like, I, Aja does perfectly good work and it's thorough, it's detailed, it's really not that interesting. <laughs> right. Yeah. It it has characters that live on one side of the fence or the other. One is kind of post-apocalyptic with tech, and everybody wonders what the other side's like because they don't. They're not willing to go there, and once you go there, you're not supposedly able to come back. Although some characters obviously do. And then there are aliens. Um, so yeah, that big secret reveal. Yeah. Not a whole lot of original material. No. I mean. Not like a lot of original design either. Like that's kind of the thing that the aliens are very generic green men. Um, there's, there's some bug motifs, but that's 
pretty traditional at this point. Like it's not like it's not like it's 1984 and Swamp Thing again with Arcane. So you know, it's, it's you're not quite sure what type of book this is supposed to be either. Yeah, and I'm just kind of like this is um okay. It's okay. Uh, it's better. It's grabbing me more than the other burger books did, but yeah. even so, it's like, yeah, you could take it yeah. or leave it. I mean, yeah. Well, again, these are these are like uh, avenues that have been explored pretty much relentlessly already, and I'm yeah. wondering make them interesting. And then David Aja's kind of grungy noirish graphics contribute to the overall atmosphere, but. Again, there's really not a whole lot of interesting visual stuff. I mean, he's a good designer, but uh, there's a lot of panels in there that are obviously photo referenced. Yeah. And don't uh, add anything as far as me like being compelled to want to read the book. But much I don't more. know why we need nine pages of that kind of art either, or nine panels a page of that approach to the art. Like, it just seems like I'm just not that kind of artist that you want to see thumbnails right like well yeah he's known as being a, a sequential artist in a fine arts mode like if you look back at that issue of uh hawkeye yeah, yeah. Right, he riffs off of chris ware yeah. and, and you know i mean he, when he pushes it maybe that would have done something but i i wouldn't want the book to be any more obscure than it is yeah. now that would hurt it you know so a a, a, a less than successful launch but okay, if you're a fan of David Aja, get your fix, you know. Yeah. And, you know sure. Uh, yeah, I know. Uh, okay, so... Bags and some okay stuff, but, you know, there's still good stuff out there to read. Anyway. Yeah, Highest House, Bloodstrike, go get them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Weatherman, yes, go yeah. get Weather. Um. All right, so I'm still reading... Love and Rockets. When's the last time we did an episode? What did I talk about? Oh man, I couldn't. I couldn't. I couldn't even begin to imagine. I mean, you got the. You're doing this whole overview of the first series so far, and I think last time I remember, you're you're kind of going through the phases of uh, how Jaime and Beto are just kind of getting interested in different things as things go on. Had I finished uh, what's the big uh, seven in part dimorphism one yet, or no? Yeah, well, one issue past that. Oh, I'm not that much further past that. We're podcasting more than usual. <laughs> um, yeah, so I uh, think I'm on 28 or 29 now, and I got to the issue – I got to some of the stuff where Jaime's uh, concentrating on Ray and Doyle more. Yeah. Which is um, kind of like reading a – Love and Rockets out of the Twilight Zone. You're just yeah. like, it's Love and Rockets, but with dudes. Like, and they're not as interesting as no, the No, and it's just like, and you can tell that Jaime doesn't think Doyle's that interesting either. Like, and you wonder why the, why the girls kind of like hanging around these guys. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's because they're teenage girls. Like, the ones that hang out with Doyle are like the 16 year old, 17 year olds. It's not Maggie. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, at yeah. least. Yeah. So, you know, it's successful, but not certainly not a high point as far as Jaime's ambitions as a storyteller, like the one where he does the peanuts riff. You know, that's a stylistic okay. thing, you know, something new. Yeah. yeah. But 
it's not like Beto who did a Frida Kylo biography in like, I don't know, eight or 10 pages. That's comprehensive and awesome. And I was like, I wish this were in color. It's the first yeah. time I've ever said that about Love and Rockets, but I'm like, it, 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 that only reflects the paintings of Frida Kahlo, which are very colorful yeah. mixed type arrangements. You know, um, I will say that like, Love and Rockets in the mid-20s starts to reveal them with an impatience towards mainstream type of subject matter, even stuff that they've done, even to the point where they like radically change the the characters, if only because they're kind of tired of them and want to try something new with them. And Human Diastrophism is the first masterpiece, I believe, that falls within Love and Rockets. I mean, everything is four stars up to that point, but when you get to Human Diastrophism, you hit five stars, you know. And uh, Jaime doesn't quite hit five stars, but he's always a consistent four-star people because you like his characters and, you know, you like, uh, let's hang around the streets and go get some beards some drugs and play in a band or something, you know. Yeah, well... He seemed to be a lot more ambitious with his narrative earlier on. Yeah, there's there's a certain type of love he has for Maggie that definitely changes. Yes, like when when he Maggie hasn't had a big epic in a long time, right? And it's kind of like that's kind of weird, and like the character's uh, aging too. Yeah. So, but yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, uh, and the one I haven't written about yet, but I'm in the middle of reading and rereading is the, the baby Luba story, uh, her secret origin of Luba. Oh yeah. That's yeah, good stuff. Yeah. 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 And that's, that's like really Beto just being like, yeah, you guys are getting no hints at what's going on now. Like, here's the story. Hope you're paying attention to the, you know, quarter inch tall background because that's actually where the important material is. Yeah. He he keeps trying to up the ante constantly with his characters and stuff like that. You know, I mean, we've, we've been what, uh, through human diastrophism, we actually see, uh, Lubra's children begin to take, uh, I would just say center stage. Yeah. Starts becoming more background, but now you're starting the point where you get her origin story, uh, with her father's, main guy he's a scarred guy i forget what the hell his name is he's all messed up yeah but she shows an allegiance to him despite that i think it's more than but you know it's such a beautifully multi-level book and it's you gotta if you're really into comics there really isn't too many that are in the league of love and rockets you know there's maybe alan moore and a couple other writers that can balance so many spinning plates at the same time and still not let any of them crash. And if they do crash, there's a reason for it. It's not just happenstance or I got lazy or something like that, you know? Yeah, you're going to run into some stuff pretty soon that's uh, pretty wild involving the aging of the characters and then these retro stories about them as children. And, uh, you know, it, it's just a, it's a wonderful comic. And it's, it's kind of cool to see you discover the, the, the thing for the first time. And, re- and well, you have to read second, it. Second time. But... Second time around? Okay, good. Because yeah, I, I read the trades that I bought from you, the hardcovers. Man. Man, if I remembered comics I sold people 20 years ago, I would be insane, I think, to be honest with you. I can't keep all that information. But Love and Rockets is good stuff. Yeah. All right, let's see. What do we got? Trade paperbacks. Oh, this is an interesting one. The uh, IDW, interestingly enough, I, I almost feel sorry for these guys going through financial ruin because this seems to be a high point in their publishing history, right? right? 
And uh, the complete Alex Sinner volume two finishes Carlos Munoz, or is it Munoz and Sampoyo? They're disaffected uh, Argentinians, maybe South Americans that emigrated to France, was it? To do comics, I'm thinking. At the same point in their lives, it was quite a coincidence. You know, they both leave and they meet and they start doing stuff. And it's like, holy shit, these guys are, are great. But Alex Sinner, Volume 2, reflects much in the same way you see the attitude of uh, the Hernandez brothers when they, when they change their interest in what they're doing. You know, and Alec doesn't—he doesn't exist as the central protagonist anymore. He's more of a catalyst, you know, kind of like Frank Punisher from mm-hmm. Garth Ennis, where you know he's the cipher, and uh, the boys start taking on uh, different concerns about what they're interested in, and it becomes more of a socially involved comic than it was before. I think yeah. you know, although it trades off in its abstract type of jazz-like music riffing. You know, they, they, they give up traditional storytelling and go for emotional musical notes, I think, more than anything. You know, I know you ran out of a little patience with it at the end. Or whatever. Not near as much as you did with the second to last story. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what was it? Uh, that, that last one was, I don't know. You, you, you wonder, I, I kind of know what he's adding up to or what they're adding up to. And I have to applaud them for trying. They're pushing the boundaries of comics in a way. Uh, Whether or not it's an entirely successful experiment, I guess, depends on how your first impression reads a lot of times. You know, you're expecting a straightforward kind of Alex Sinner story, and it ceases to be that in volume two. Yeah. Um, And, yeah, it's... I think we talked about this a little. There's one point where you think he's getting on a bus to go, I think, to Mexico to meet up with a girl. Yeah. But then he's on the bus for, like, the next three stories, but he's traveling the U.S. Like, they forgot about the girl entirely. Like... Yeah, yeah. And then the last story is sort of a 9-11 conspiracy thriller starring Alex Sinner. Yes. And some of his supporting cast. And it might have been a perfectly good story if, like, it might, but it was not a successful finish to the collection or the character. Yeah, good point. Because you're you're left wanting more. Yeah, and it's like, this is, I mean, especially after the first, the last Alex Sinner sort of mini novel in the first collection is just this amazing piece of comics. There's nothing approaching that in this one. Um, not even the best stuff in this anywhere is anywhere near as good as their sort of what's it called actually, since I have it right here. And he is not it? Yes. Was it encounters? Yes. Encounters the sort of 90 page finale in the last one. There's nothing like that in here. And so it, it it's kind of sad that this is the end of how the character ends. I think there was a – I had a disappointment about that was that they explored new places they could take the character and then decided to use him sort of as a, as a vehicle to, to look at other things um, – 
and never sort of came back to the character in the same way. Right, right. Yeah, they, they decide that their concerns are, are of storytelling and what they want to go for is different. And Alex Sinner is kind of along for the ride more than, you know, affecting the plot or even being central in the plot sometimes. There's yeah. A lot of places where he just falls off, you know. And, and well, it, it, Alex Sinner was a moderately successful thing, probably successful more than a lot of things. It does take a lot of patience and open headedness to go along with the directions they choose to travel the book with sometimes. Yeah. Uh, but worth reprinting, and if you're a hardcore comic fanatic like we are, worth your time. Yep. Um, God, I finally got through the uh, Fourth World Omnibus by Jack Kirby. Like that was humongous, and uh, you know that book. That book is a perfect metaphor for the rise and fall of mainstream comics. You know, because on one hand, you've got this utterly imaginative guy, Jack Kirby, who's got more ideas than he can possibly pack into a 20-page story, and yet he works for mainstream comics that don't really give a shit about the man's imagination or anything. I mean, he was coming off of Marvel, dissatisfied by his relationship with Marvel and obviously Stan Lee, and he got lured away by DC, and they give him carte blanche, and he starts this huge epic story that he's probably always wanted to tell, which incorporates like a lot of his interests, mythology, uh, science, science. Uh, he just brings along all this Jack Kirby baggage, and uh, he, he gets four titles, New Gods, Forever People, and Mr. Miracle. And he does, you just for a quick thing, some of the best ones are, are the first issue of Jimmy Olsen, number 133, uh, which is, this book has the most plot out of all of the books, because he has so many characters and so many things going on, and he brings in Supertown, the Newsboy Legion, his, ins his insane interest in clones, which just permeate the entire thing all the way through. And being the mainstream publisher, they don't let him go. They go, they go to Kurt Swan and Murphy Anderson, and they redraw like all of Superman's and Jimmy's heads so that it conforms to how he should like look for the DC universe and stuff like that. But uh, that was a great book, uh, New Gods. Uh, I mean, when you, I'll give you a quick litany of some of this stuff. It starts talking about the war between New Genesis and Apocalypse, and it brings to the forefront Orion, Light Ray, and Dark Side. Uh, it explores such great inventions as the Boom Tube, uh, Mister Miracle Number One, which was the most conventional of all the books. Uh, that goes into great depth to go about Mother Box, and it brings in Big Barda, Granny Goodness, and the Female Furies. But the main emphasis, even though Jimmy Olsen is the most plot oriented. The, I think the New Gods is the one that was the most successful in giving Kirby uh, the dynamic kind of mythological tone he wanted to do. Uh, in issues five and six, it's a two-parter featuring the monstrous Deep Six Assassins and uh, the Glory Boat, which is kind of this mutated weapon that they get from the souls and, and physicality of humans they've enslaved and transformed. And it gives you some kind of nobility about Orion and, and Light Ray, and they acknowledge the fact that they're here to stop them from destroying everything, and it's a pity that the human Earth is in the way and humans are manipulated. I mean, it's got some pretty heavy shit. Um, issue 8 features the war with uh, this one New York Sergeant Turpin of the New York Police Department, who literally almost loses his life trying to face down with Earth weapons against uh, Orion's stepbrother Cal Calabac, and it's one of the greatest fight scenes in comics. Uh, 
Issue 9 introduces uh, Forager, the Bug, which is, these are all characters that have just come back constantly through DC's mythos that in books Jack didn't do. Uh, there's a two-parter in Jimmy Olsen 142 that brings in the universal movie monsters that he loves, and they have like this micro-sized planet that Jimmy and Superman have to shrink down and go to. I mean, the man is just literally gone. And, and these are like little masterpieces. Mr. Miracle 9, of all things, which is a flashback of Scott Free's days as a slave on Apocalypse and how he escapes with the uh, the help of Hyman, the man that invents the mother box and his like little few, uh, they're not heroes, they're actually like misfits, which is kind of cool, you know, and it's uh, the first meeting between him and Big Barda and they've never met anyone like each other before and that just kind of lays the groundwork for their relationship and New Gods 10, which was Orion's final encounter with Calabac. And uh, the pres- the presence of the Black Racer, which is kind of like the death figure in uh, in in New Gods, and and you know, like Orion and Calabac are just kicking the shit out of each other, just going through buildings as they're going on, and the whole time the Black Racer's running around, and they see him, and they know that one or both of them are going to die, otherwise this guy wouldn't be here in the first place. And uh, I don't know by Miss Miracle Ten, which is I mean the whole New Gods thing ran from seventy to seventy two. Kirby was doing four books on a bi-monthly basis, which meant he was doing essentially two books a month, which is an insane amount of output. Sadly enough, they weren't selling. They weren't catching on. And DC was giving him the news, I'm sure. And by Mr. Miracle 10, even the most steeped in conventional comics has all been kind of ditched the war theme between Apocalypse and New Genesis, which is particularly sad. And with Mother Box reduced to like mere circuitry that he refers to in his hood. And it's just really tough stuff that Kirby's got to swallow this to change things around. I mean, he, he, Mr. Miracle lasts the longest uh, out of all the books, maybe another six issues, another year. And he goes as far to introduce a minority character called Shiloh Norman that's brought in, I suppose, as a sidekick, but that's never fully developed. And then it kind of ends in the horribly aborted Mr. Miracle 18, which ties things up with a sense of humor along the way they squeeze in the wedding of Mr. Miracle and Big Barda. It's really sad because um, I tell you, uh, you look at the grand design and how he had like these little masterpiece issues within the entire framework of the series and how it didn't sell. And as a creator, this must have been quite a crushing blow to reestablish himself because a lot of this shit was successful at Marvel. You know what I mean? And, right. and one argue maybe Stanley's input had something to do with it. Uh, but he did have Mark Evanier working with him in California to smooth out the edges and the dialogue and stuff. But uh, he left after after all those books got canceled due to poor sales. He would go on to do The Demon and Commandy and OMAC, which were successful on their own, but more individual and not linked to a huge mythological theme like the fourth world stuff was. And when he comes back to these things uh, for another tour of duty at D.C. to tie him up in 84, he's well past his creative prime at this point. And the ideas of the war kind of get lost in a general description of Kirby's dissatisfaction with machinery and how it's replacing mankind and even dark side is shown as someone that relies more on technology rather than he does his own personal warriors who are all dead at this point. And, uh, but Kirby's style and his storytelling methods and his art have all gone like south by this point. 
and it's just really tough. You look at the great promise of the series, the little masterpieces that it had within it, and how it ended. And DC wouldn't let him kill any of the characters. Like, Orion and Darkseid must live. And I'm like, well, no, that's that's not the effing point. Somebody's got to win or something like that, you know? And I enjoyed the entire thing, although the end was particularly hard to read. It's not particularly good comics, you know, and the characters are a long way from their glory days. Let's put it that way. But the fourth world omnibus is not just about Jack Kirby, but it's a really good snapshot of mainstream comics, how good they can be and how utterly failed they can become. So, you know, read at your own risk. It's great stuff. The first two thirds are magnificent. And then it just kind of goes downhill. Be prepared for that. But, uh, it's like history. You know what I mean? You're reading history. History doesn't always come out good. Sometimes you end with the aftermath of World War II. You know, I mean, that's just how it goes. But a nice book. Uh, I don't know. if you get, Would that be at the library? That's a freaking huge I imagine tool. so, yeah. Well, anyway. All righty. Well, let's see. In our last of the trade paperbacks to cover this time around, God, IDW does it again. You know, I really hope that they have some financial success because – their uh, domestic and translation, like right now I'm getting into translated books that uh, now that Marvel and DC are taking a big crap on uh, enjoying of uh, American-made books for the most part, I'm trying to find a lot of translations. And uh, I'm about a third of the way through The Complete The Killer by Jackamon and Mates, who I guess are a couple of Frenchmen that do this uh, series of albums in, uh, in about 40, 48-page stories about a professional killer and his life and his philosophy and everything like that. And they're really a nice slow burn, and my introduction to the album so far has been pretty good. It's uh, very well done. Uh, the killer's uh, motives and his personality are well done. The people he kills, he has a reason for it. And uh, Mates' art is uh, quite solid, too. They're really beautiful, translucent, watercolor-type thingies that perfectly give the atmosphere of wherever he's at, whether it's in the middle of the Amazon jungles or he's having... Uh, dinner at a really nice, uh, f- nice Paris, France restaurant. And so far that's been a real good one too. So I read some of these many, many years ago, yeah. but it's not them under one, one big clump like that. You know, it's like a big 750 page volume. So, so far so good. And I'll continue and I'll check in next time with how it finishes. Uh, so let's get to some media, Mr. Media man. Well, we got Luke Cage. Luke Cage was good. Yeah. Um, Marvel, Marvel hit hit kind of hit on all. I won't say six cylinders, but they hit at least on five of them this time. Yeah, they. Uh, and you didn't have your bad last episode, so you were fine there, I imagine. Well, you know, they they, they have that that thirteen episode thing, which is always a curse for them because they have to like introduce subplots to get it to go to thirteen. Well, and yeah, what, but a TV show would have that. That's kind of the thing. Like, I always forget about that when I'm looking forward to, like, when you see the preview for the show, and you're like, oh, so it's Luke versus Bushmaster and Black Mariah and Shades. You forget that a regular TV show has subplots going because, you know, they need to keep people busy and things like that. It, it Luke Cage isn't just about Luke Cage. Luke Cage is about Misty. It's it's about the villains. Like this season really get, brings everybody up to that level. Um, there, 
there's that great joke. Uh, like the, you're right, though. The, the villains are just superb this time around. They're really fleshed out. Well, it's they didn't make the mistake this time where it was like last time. What was it? Cottonmouth was great, and who was the second guy? Uh, another snake name. Yeah, the Adler. I don't know. Luke's brother. Luke's half brother yeah. was a terrible villain. Like that yeah. was dumb. Whereas Cottonmouth was great, and he's gone halfway through. They don't make that mistake this time. Uh, Bushmaster's awesome from the start. He sticks it through. They they even are able to introduce Mariah's daughter and have that come off well. Like, everything they do this series is great until you get to the end, and you're just like, how are they going to do a third series? <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and the villains uh, just really outshine Luke Cage himself. Well, and I, I mentioned that it's like between between the villains and Misty and the woman who plays Misty, I don't think she really had very many jobs before Misty. And it's like, that's bad because she's great. But yeah. you're just like, Mike Coulter's the worst actor on his own show. Yeah, and he's the star. And he's the, and he's the star. And it's like. All the concerns for the next season are based around the fact that he's got to do things now as opposed to just being Luke Cage. He's got to be Luke Cage with a mission, uh, with a complicated mission. It's just like, I'm not sure he can pull that off. Yeah, that's true. Uh, you're, you're asking an awful lot for a guy that's been pretty much reactive to everything that's mm-hmm. happened so far. Now, at the end of this one, he's kind of forced to be proactive because he's a person in stature with all the villains that have been in the show so far. So, yeah. Um, how about that that actress that plays black Mariah, man? She, she's great. It's Alfre Woodard. Of course she's great. Yeah. She has the best single scene in anything with Marvel's name on it too. When she tells her daughter, what's up? Yeah. The the hospital episode. Yeah. Oh my God. You know, it's a talking heads episode, but it just works so. Uh, But yeah, you're right. That's definitely been one of their most successful series so far. I would say until the 10th episode, which is the iron fist episode, which was better than I've seen iron fist before, but still was not good enough. And I will say that the reason it, you can tell it's not good enough because think about the fight choreography in that episode. And then right. think about the fight choreography when he has to team up with Bushmaster a little bit later on. It's awesome when he's fighting with Bushmaster. Yeah. It's never quite good enough when he's fighting with Iron Fist. Yeah. He, what do you call that? He, he, he's a good sidekick, but he can't really hold his own as an interesting character on the own. No. Yeah. What what is this this whole thing? Maybe it leads up to them teaming up like they did in the comics and forming heroes for hire or something. That they're like, that's our hope, but the thing is is they don't leave season three in a place or season two Luke Cage can't go into that next. No. And I feel like we would have heard by now if Luke Cage somehow resolves in Iron Fist season two. Yeah, maybe that would be the thing for him. But you know, I don't think that there's that it would have to be different. So on the other hand, maybe Iron, maybe 
Heroes for Hire would resolve the Luke Cage thing. I don't know. I don't know. They did Netflix, uh, to sum it up, they've done a really good job of taking the old comic book characters and situations and elaborating on them and stretching them out for dramatic TV shows. And they're remarkably true to the comic books, even though the comic books were probably dash throwaways designed for a minority audience back in the 70s, you know, with the outrageous names they have and the you know, the, 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 the superpowers they have, but, uh, yeah, Bushmaster is just excellent. Watch it for Bushmaster and you'll finish off with Mariah yep. and great stuff. Uh, on the other hand, what's going on with the WB? Have they like self-imploded? Do, do they have any reasons to watch their shows after last season? I'm, I'm, I'm still on the fence about that. Um, Flash, I think next season will be more fun. Hope so. Because the last episode of this season, I can't even remember how the thinker crap resolved. Um, but the promise of like the daughter, the future daughter, like sort of a back to the future type thing. That's kind of fun. As long as they keep it fun. Um, they're definitely going to do the Caitlin thing because they're casting her dad. So in some ways that's more interesting than anything Barry's had going on with himself. The whole, like, I've been killing Frost my whole life thing. Yeah, yeah. Very to be the least interesting character in his own show, though. And that yeah, hurt. it does. But, again, with him and Iris getting to play off their grown daughter, future daughter, maybe that'll give them something. You, do you think she's the new Impulse? No, she has her own name. She has her own name, okay. Yeah. But, so, Supergirl... Mm. Um, that, that thing just imploded near that the direct, That just self-destructed on that finale. Like yeah. they had that goofy episode at the beginning of the season where they did a, a retro story of Supergirl and her sisters, teenagers. Which was, and that was the best episode all season. <sighs> yeah, and and they get down to the end of this season, and like the whole freaking thing. I mean, it was a miasma of liberal causes that they have to shoehorn in and it's just they come off of the a thud more often than not you know and uh i always watch supergirl for its utter lack of logic and its stupidity in the way i didn't have to think about it but now it's almost making fun of me with its lack of logic and silliness you know i mean come on when when's gonna be a member of the legion of superheroes really i mean he won't be on the show anyway so you won't have to think about it yeah you're right that's a good way to get rid of him well I almost wonder they took a long break in Supergirl mid-season I almost wonder if they were planning because when Monel and the Legion came in at the beginning it almost seemed like they were thinking about doing a Legion show yeah and they aren't doing a Legion show. So I'm wondering if they re-examined what they were going to be doing next and had to adjust for that. Because the other members of the Legion never got woken up on the ship. No, no. Yeah, which was odd, bringing them in in the first place. Why bring them in if you're not going to use them? Yeah. So, yeah, it's – and it's – we didn't hear about them losing their budget or anything. So I feel like something changed during the season – could have been that executive producer who got who had to finally get fired for sexually harassing all of the uh, female employees on the show, but whatever. 
Yeah, but whatever. Yeah, that that could contribute to that a lack. contributed whatever that guy's name was. Um, I'm willing to give it a shot next season, just because it seems like they're gonna reboot it enough that we'll see. But it it from what they've even said of what they're doing next season, it's like the whole red sun tag at the end of the season three finale isn't even the major story of season four. Well, yeah. And that would like occupy at least four or five episodes of the next season. I, you know, they should probably break it down to three major arcs. This is, yeah, they can't, they are not successful at doing a season long storyline with these things. Legends, they seem a little bit more successful with, but Legends, they only are doing it for 18 episodes in a season. They're not doing it for 22 or 23. Okay. Yeah, well, you know, and there's almost so much history you can mine, you know, and it seems to be a a dropping zone for characters they'd like to introduce but don't have to keep on. You know, I often wondered, sometimes like wonder why Firestorm left the band. He just went Oh, well, Jefferson's dead. I can still turn into Firestorm, but, you know, I guess I'll just be a mechanic somewhere, like, drop me off here, guys. It was so sad. Uh, I feel like that was budgetary. Yeah, yeah, it gets that way. The, the WB shows have an awful lot of characters. Sometimes they have too many characters for their own good. In a comic book, you can keep up with that because you can reread the things. Right. But you don't have you don't have an hour to rewatch an episode of television. You know, that's that's asking a lot of people to watch a show more than once just to keep up with the, the plot lines. I don't know how many times I had customers at my shop saying they couldn't keep up with the shows, even though they're weekly. It was still a, a hard thing to keep up with all the plot lines and the characters, you know, and and I think uh, you and I talked about, too, like, well, Marvel's doing the whole like edginess. They're leaving the movies for the family oriented. Oh, yeah. And the TV is more R-rated, which I think helps a lot. And and DC has abandoned that premise. I don't know. Maybe they haven't. I don't know. Well, no. DC is going to be going very dark, Vernon, with fuck Batman Titans. Oh, yeah. The angsty Titans. Yeah, yeah. I forgot about that. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, yeah well. And that's going to be in continuity with a Doom Patrol show, at least. And maybe something else. Is that on their streaming network? Yeah. Or- Okay, yeah. so the adult stuff will be on the streaming network. Well, I'll catch up with that then. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't Thanks. know. Uh, what is it? Uh, I, Aquaman. Uh, Iron Fist is coming out in September, so you're going to have to watch that and tell me how much is Misty and if I'm going to watch it. Yeah, and you. Daredevil Season 3 will be out before the end of the year, they finally announced. So. Oh, okay. We've got Daredevil before the end of the year, which means Punisher next spring, and then Jessica or Punisher probably early next or late winter next year, then Jessica Jones in the spring, and then who the fuck knows in the summer and on. But we've well, got Net- some stuff. Yeah, Netflix seems to be doing pretty well among uh, adult entertainment and shows and stuff like that. Uh, I don't know. They're they're horrible with movies, but I'm really digging a lot of that stuff. Yeah. They seem to be able to – they have a nice loose leash for their TV shows that they don't have to follow a pattern or we don't have a demographic. You just got to make them interesting and kind of edgy, I think, you know. 
So, you know, I'm all about it. And Lord knows it's much better than Marvel's television attempts uh, on mainstream, which are totally unwatchable for me. I yeah. yeah. And Captain Marvel, how are they going to keep him interesting in a movie for two hours? Shazam? I, I, really, I don't know. Yeah, that's going to be a tough haul. Aquaman, okay, I, I can kind of see that being a movie length. But Captain Marvel, really? You know, and... Uh, in this day and age, I, I I can't remember too well, but the trailer, everybody was Caucasian, weren't they? I and think I'm- some of the Foster... So, there was this, this story of this um, with the Spider-Man Homecoming. Uh-huh. How, you know, the kids looked like a high school in uh, wherever Queens would look, right? It was a mix of... Uh, uh, like there were black characters, there's Asian characters, there's the white kid. Just like life. Just like real life. And Zendaya, I think is how you pronounce her name, who plays the Mary Jane stand-in who had four lines in Homecoming but presumably will become more important as the series goes on. She talks about how when she auditioned for that, she was just like doing it sort of like, well, I'm just going to audition for this even though there's no chance they're going to hire me because I'm black. And they were like, well, no, we're actually going very multi- uh, we're, we're trying to be realistically ethnic with this movie. And she's like, oh, holy shit, really? Captain or Shazam, I think the Foster family is diverse, but they're not going to be in this fucking movie. They'd be in the sequel. So that's delaying the inevitable. Right. So, I mean, it's like Captain Marvel Jr., whoever the shit. It is Mary Marvel could be black or Hispanic, but she ain't going to be in this movie. It will be in the sequel that will be contingent on this movie making what? $700 million worldwide. There may not be a sequel. Right. So, I mean, it's like, it's very much that DC thing of like, oh, no, 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 you come back. If you see this enough, we'll do it next time. We promise. I just didn't understand it. I mean, with all this, uh, even the television shows reflect ethnic diversity. And I'm like, you're going to sit there and blow, I don't know, two, three hundred million dollars to make a movie. And you're only going to have Caucasian heroes. It's a whole family of Caucasians. Oh, that ought to, that's going to go over real big in the era of Black Panther and the Avengers. Right. Like, let's not forget that Black Panther is the most successful Marvel movie outside of Infinity War or something. I mean, like, it's yeah. up there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's either, it's either the most, it's either two or three. I think it's, it, I, it definitely, well, it made 700 million. It just passed 700 million. So yeah. So, I mean, it's but, just like, right. And I, and you know, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not, on the bandwagon of Afrocentricness, but I understand why a lot of people are, you know, and that's cool with me. And it even inspired like this comic book creators uh, convention, a mini con yeah. of minorities. And I'm like, well, good. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's a good thing. It's a, it's a bringing new blood into the field. And when they come up with this movie, totally tone deaf to the requirements of society nowadays, uh, especially, I mean, I kept in Marvel, like again, here's, here's it with the women again. With the Justice League movie, you got Wonder Woman, but you don't have any major female protagonists in these things. And I just don't get it. I don't get it. Well, Do they think just white males are going to go see these films? That's, that's well, kind of audience, I mean, you know? think about the pro- the other problem with Shazam is even if you think 
the dude is hot, it's a 12-year-old boy in there. Yes. So you in are a body. In the body. So you're a pervert at the very least and possibly, you know, criminal. Like it's it'd be creepy to find Shazam hot. Or or for a woman to find Shazam hot. That's what I mean. That he's got the mind of a 12-year-old boy. Like Right. Well, at, on the other hand, like that's probably what women are used to dealing with, but still. But he better have the virility of Zeus. And <laughs> <laughs> have a steady girlfriend. <laughs> and the other thing with Shazam is, do they really not have a star playing the fucking wizard? Like in the preview, it looks like the wizard's just some guy in a, ma- a cloak. Like, is that it? Like, you got a million actors who need work that are that can. Right, put- they at uh, least. I remember wizard. in the uh, what was it, Superman, Shazam cartoon, they had James Garner do the voice of the wizard, and it's like, okay. James Garner's dead. Clint Eastwood's not. You get his ass in that fucking hood. Like, come on. It's got to be somebody. It's got to be somebody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's got to be something. And right. I don't think they're going to do it. I think and it's that tone down. You only got to pay to have, what, 15 minutes in one of the movies. I mean, even if you had to pay a guy a million dollars, that would be fine, you know. Yeah. I just so, don't get it. I don't or, know. What was that one thing that struck me in the Aquaman pilot? When they're on a plane going somewhere, yeah. he jumps out of the plane and he's looking. He goes, redheads. He makes some kind of joke about redhead women. And I'm like, whoa, that landed like a brick. You I know. know. Like, this is like <sighs> Jason Moma can get away with a certain amount of cheese because, like, he's eye candy. Yeah. But that one, I was just like. That's 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 a dud of a joke. Like, come on! I know you're you're gonna have to have a multifaceted acting personality to make Aquaman interesting, and I'm not quite convinced that we're there with Jason Momoa anyway. Um, yeah, but again, I will say this: even though I know you're not that interested, you should see Infinity War. You know, I probably will. It's coming out on DVD pretty soon, yeah. and I can pick it up at Redbox, okay. and I'll just. You know, it's really funny. Like I was sitting there telling you the other day, like I have Netflix and I was like, okay, there's the Star Wars film. And then there's that other one, uh, Guardians 2. And zero interest in seeing either of them one night. And I wanted to go to bed and fall asleep. <laughs> so I ended up watching Thor Ragnarok again, you know, and, and I enjoyed that because it had so much comic book stuff in there to keep me going. I don't know how about the mate. I don't know if that would do it for the rest of the world, but there was enough to keep me entertained. But I had zero interest in seeing those other two, you know? So that kind of polluted my experience to want to see Avengers Infinity War, although that should have enough chops from whatever. You know, I, I, I think that the Marvel machine has hypnotized so many people because all of my customers seem to like all the Marvel films equally well. What's Marvel got on tap for the end of the year? Nothing. And, and what else? Venom. Venom from Sony is all. Yeah. They, so they, they didn't relinquish all the rights then. Well, they, they didn't just... actually relinquish Spider-Man. They're sharing Spider-Man. Okay. But Spider-Man is currently under exclusive contract with Marvel or some shit. But basically once Disney's done with Spider-Man and Tom Holland, Sony thinks that they're going to be able to get him into Sony Spider-Man movies. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, 
And on that note, did you hear that Ike Perlmutter was a member of the trio of Trump's dudes that run the VA in a secret enclave at his resort in Mar-a-Lago? Yes. I'm like, you can't make shit up this stupid or weird. It's just so preposterous. Great, so. yeah. Yeah, so maybe maybe the Guardians of the Galaxy can accidentally blow up Mar-a-Lago in their spare time or something like that. I don't know. That's when truth is stranger than fiction. Yeah. Well, on that note, shall we tie it up, kids? Let's tie it up. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening again. As always, we try to keep you busy and keep the conversation brisk and intellectual. Yes, of some kind, yes. And, uh, yeah. So we'll be back uh, sometime soonish. We don't know hey, when. What, what number is this podcast? It oh, is yeah. number. We're not to fifty yet. We are number. Uh, we are on number. We got to be pushing fifty. Nah, we're almost there. We're on number. F- I think we're on forty-six or forty-seven. Let me see. Okay. We are on number 48. We have 250. All right. So we got a reason to keep plowing away yeah. here. So we'll keep the quality up. That's a, that's our promise to you, listener. All right. You well, be good. We'll, we'll hit some more books next time around. Not a whole lot. So it might be about six weeks or so. We got to get some books. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no doubt about it. But in the meantime, get out there and read the independent stuff and make your dealer carry it because uh, Marvel and DC ain't doing it these days. So they'll get it together eventually, but uh, not in time for me to want to get to a shop and read some comics. That's for sure. All right, y'all have a great, great uh, season, I guess. Half season. season. Half season. Half season. Summer. Yeah, have a great, enjoy the rest of your summer. Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah. Take care of yourselves. <laughs>